Please be seated. Back in the year 1979, in the country of Venezuela, a young girl was born whose name was Veruska Ramirez. Veruska was abandoned as a child by her parents, lived on the streets, but she was pretty savvy and scrappy and managed to find a way to get educated and to earn enough money for her food by working uh, as a maid in a hotel. She lived a very difficult life in this small village in Venezuela. And then one day in that village, something that had never happened before happened. They were honored by a visit from the reigning Miss Venezuela. And in Venezuela, as you may know, beauty pageants are big business. So Veruska was so excited that this famous person was coming to her village and she waited in line for hours to be able to get an autograph from Miss Venezuela. And she was 17 years old at this point. And when she went up to get this autograph, she was very surprised that Miss Venezuela took an interest in her and said, you should consider competing in the Miss Venezuela pageant. And in fact, she took Veruska under her wing and the very next year, Veruska Ramirez was crowned as Miss Venezuela. But even more than that, she went to the Miss Universe pageant and came in as first runner-up. So she was catapulted from complete obscurity in this tiny little town into being on the world stage. She became a well-known model. She attracted a lot of endorsements for uh, various products, and she became quite wealthy and well-known. And then one day, when she was 23 years old, when she had just returned from a trip abroad, her car was held up at gunpoint by bandits. And she was robbed of a lot of money she had just taken out of the bank. Um, her manager was handcuffed and thrown out of the car. And then she was kidnapped, and she was being held for ransom. But Veruska Ramirez was scrappy, and so she was able to negotiate with her captors by saying, don't you know who I am? And then she explained to them that she was a beauty queen and that if they would be nice to her, she would autograph the uh, calendars, photo calendars she had in the car in a box locked in the trunk and give them to these captors. And in return for that, she was let go. So it was uh, a kidnapping perhaps with a happy ending. And you may think, why in the world is he talking about this? And the reason is that our gospel lesson today is about captivity, even a captivity that you may not know that you are in, and the ransom that has been paid. So when we turn to look at today's gospel lesson, which I would invite you to do, it starts off with the request of James and John. And it says that they come to Jesus, and I want you to note very carefully what they do. They come to Jesus and look at what they say. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Now, that's pretty bold. And I would like to suggest to you that it seems, just on that little reading, to be full of pride and self-importance. But wait, 
It's actually much worse than it looks. Uh, If you were here last week, you will remember that Jeff preached on the story of the rich young ruler, the man with the sincere heart that said, how can I be saved? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And remember, this young man came to Jesus, fell on his knees and said, good teacher. So he was showing respect and humility. And Jesus, in that same passage, talks about coming as a little child, coming in humility and innocence to the Lord. But then it gets worse yet, because the lectionary actually left out something between last week's reading in Mark and this week's. Listen to what was left out, and this is a good lesson about why context is always important. This is what came immediately before today's gospel lesson. Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And the disciples were on the road going to Jerusalem And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve disciples again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) Just imagine for a moment what it must have been like to be Jesus. Here you have poured your life into these apostles for years. You have just explained to them for the third time in this Gospel of Mark that you are going to die, that you are going to be taken to a humiliating death, that you are going to be flogged, you are going to be spit upon, all of these things, and you're going to be killed. You would at least hope that they would say, oh, we're so sorry. (laughs) But there's nothing of that. They are utterly self-absorbed. And it is so easy for us to say, I would never be like that. But the fact of the matter is, this is the way we are, or at least the way I am and the way our culture is today. It is all about me. It is about what I want, and I want what I want when I want it. And the interesting thing here is that it is a great testimony to the truth of Scripture, because this doesn't really make the apostles look very good. And I think it is one of those things that helps us to have some hope that They didn't always get it either. So I want us to reflect on a couple of things this morning. The first is this whole idea of coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want you to do for me what I want you to do, and I want you to do it right now. Thank you very much. Uh, Certainly, Scripture tells us to come to the Lord with the desires of our hearts. But the proviso in Scripture that we see over and over and over again is not my will, Lord, but yours. 
And in this passage, we see what happens when ambition and self-centeredness and narcissism get out of control. The disciples have totally missed the point of not only who Jesus is, but what he is planning to do. They are still stuck in the paradigm that Jesus is the warrior king, that he is going to be the one who is going to bring Israel back, kind of like bringing back the Gamecocks. He's going to bring Israel back (laughs) to its days of glory, that it is going to be a great and mighty nation, and the Romans are going to be thrown out. And they want to be at Jesus' right hand when that happens, secretary of state or vice president. They want to be able to be in those high positions so they can look down at the other ten and say, we're better than you are. And they want Jesus to do it for them right now. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but just reflect a moment in the silence of your heart about how often we want to tell God what to do. So often we think we know God, we know what needs to be done in our lives better than God does. And if he would just listen to us while we give him a piece of our mind, things would go better. But that is the absolute opposite of today's gospel lesson, what Jesus is trying to teach us. So I want to move to the second thing to reflect about, which is that Jesus calls them to greatness. He doesn't say that it's wrong to want to be great. He doesn't say it's wrong to have the ambition to be great. But how you define what greatness is matters enormously. What Jesus talks about here for greatness, he even gives the very specific instruction. He says, if you want to be great, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, must be slave of all. Well, that is not something that in our culture we all want to go run and sign up for, being a servant. And this word here really is the word slave. It's doulos. It's somebody who is sold into slavery. They have been purchased as a slave, and their life is utterly beholden to someone else. And the interesting thing is that you see in Jesus' life that he lives this out. St. Paul puts this beautifully in the second chapter of Philippians. When he's talking about Jesus, he says, Have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he found himself in nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being humbled even to death, death on a cross. Jesus is our model of this. But I would suggest to you, when you look at Jesus' life, you don't see somebody who's always saying, oh, woe is me, I've got to be a servant or a slave all my life. No, you see joy bubbling out of Jesus that infects everyone that he comes into contact with. And the reason for that is that God has hardwired us. He has created us so that we find joy when we serve others. That is why the quest to be great in ourselves, to rack up the most toys, to achieve worldly fame and celebrity is so very profoundly empty because we are made to find joy in serving God and serving others. This is servanthood, the kind Jesus is talking about, that is voluntarily and intentionally chosen. 
And many of you, if you've been on a mission trip or gone to work in something where you're going to be helping poor or some other type of volunteer work, you have discovered that truism that when you get up early in the morning on a Saturday and you go to do something that help others, there's joy from that. And that's because God made you that way. How much more when you fully and voluntarily and intentionally embrace serving Jesus will you find that joy? Now, I want to make clear, this is not that kind of service that says, oh, everybody, look at me. I am, I am serving you. Please pay attention to me because I'm serving you. I'm helping out. Um, that kind of service is what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he wrote this little piece of doggerel that he said supposedly was found on a churchyard stone in a country church, erected by her sorrowing brothers in memory of Martha Clay. Here lies one who lived for others. Now she has rest, and so have they. <laughs> All too often, that's the kind of servanthood we want to embrace where we're like, look at me look at me. It's like Toby Keith in that country song, I want to talk about me. Jesus is saying here that greatness is in setting aside ourselves and our agendas and our plans and coming as a beggar to the foot of the cross and asking, Lord, how may I serve you? What would you have me do? It is not walking up to Jesus saying, Jesus, I want you to do for me what I want you to, and I want you to do it right now. Thank you very much. Which leads me to the fact that this is radical in today's culture. Every measure tells us that we live in the most narcissistic culture in the history of the world. People who desire to serve shine in the midst of this culture. That same letter to the Philippians talks about how we can shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as we hold out the word of life. That is what Jesus is calling to. And finally, I want us to reflect on this last part, which would be a great verse to memorize if you have not memorized it. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a big, strong word, and it's something that must be paid to free someone from slavery. That's literally what the Greek lutron means. It is the price that is paid to free a slave who is in bondage. And we, as people in modern-day culture, are in captivity, and we don't even know it. We are surrounded by the messages of worldly culture saying, have it your way, make it your own, I did it my way, and all of this tide and fire hydrant stream of culture is flowing on us all the time saying, we are worthy, we need to speak our truth, we are the ones who are most important. And so this idea that we are captive is foreign to us, but the fact of the matter is, Scripture tells us that we are all too easily taken captive by the spirit of the age. And I would suggest to you that we are captive to these kinds of thoughts. And the problem with it is that we think that we can be kind of like Veruska Ramirez, that we're scrappy, 
we can kind of talk our way out of whatever situations we get ourselves into, and by helping God out a little bit, we can be saved. But I want to just refer you back to something that Jeff Miller quotes all the time, uh, one of the great passages in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where St. Paul says, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were dead, or as they say in the mountains, you were dead. <laughs> dead people can't do anything. And then the glorious words of the New Testament, right after that in Ephesians, but God. God is the only one who can pay the ransom for our sinfulness and for our captivity to this age. He is the only one who can do that. And if there were any other way, he would not have sent Jesus to die on the cross. If we were good enough, if we could make it on our own, that would never have happened. Consider the one who made the worlds and set the stars in their courses and made you and understood who you were before the foundations of the world. He emptied himself and was born into this world and allowed his hands that had made the world to be nailed to the hardwood of the cross by people whom he had formed himself. It is an unbelievable act of love, and that is the costly ransom that has been paid for us. We cannot negotiate our way out. A costly, priceless ransom has been paid for us. And why would we stay in captivity when our ransom has been paid? We have been set free because of what Jesus did. We owe our very life to him. It is an amazing and beautiful thing. I want to close with a holy sonnet written by the great Anglican preacher John Donne that some of you heard about in adult forum. I wish I could say we planned that in advance. But John Donne was one of the great preachers of the late 16th and early 17th century, dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, single father of 12 children, and in the midst of all of that, managed to write some of the most sublime theological poetry ever. And he's written in this Holy Sonnet 14 a poem about the fact that we need to have God batter down the wall and free us from captivity. Listen to these words, and I pray that you will make them your prayer. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock. Breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another due, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, we confess to you the pride, hypocrisy, and self-importance of our lives. 
Lord, how we think that we can tell you what to do, and if you would just do a little more, we could work it all out. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we would see our utter bankruptcy, the fact that we are beggars at the foot of the cross, needing for you to swing that chariot low to draw us to you. Lord, help us to look up to that cross to see the wounds that have paid our ransom, that we might rejoice and we might serve you with our whole heart and the joy of your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.